Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. And as Alex said, um, we have, we've got a lot of young dads in our church. I don't even know the number of babies that have been born this year already, but it's a lot, okay? And I hear a lot of, I, I didn't have a great dad at, growing up. I don't have a great example. I don't know what it looks like to lead my kids spiritually and lead my home spiritually. So I need some help. And so I wrote uh, Gospel Dad for that purpose. It's only about 40 pages. It's just kind of an introduction, but it's got some good stuff there meant to be a help to you. So uh, you can literally just go to Amazon and search Pastor Dad Justin Dean, and it'll pop up. It's going to be a few dollars. The books is typically a few dollars, but today it's free. So if you can download it, it goes right to your Kindle, right to your phone, right to your iPad, whatever. Uh, Download it, or that QR code thing is in the bulletin if you've got it. So... All right, so uh, let me pray, and let's just jump into it this morning. Father, thank you that you are the great Father, that you are our good Father, that you even show us what fatherhood looks like in the way that you love us and lead us and discipline us. And um, This morning, we are your children, and we come to hear your voice. We come to be instructed by you. And Father, so we, we just need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to, to do that well. Um, I am a sinful, disobedient son myself, and so I need you to help me this morning. I need you to think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords that you would let your sheep, your children, hear your voice this morning. It would be all of you and, and none of me. Would you do this for our joy and for your glory? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so what we're going to do this morning, if you're just joining us, we are in a sermon series that we've been calling Fundamentals, where we're studying the fundamentals of our church, what makes us unique or what makes us Sacred City. And today we're going to be studying really the, a concept that we call gospel renewal. In one sense, this is the organizing principle for our whole church, okay? We believe that the gospel is the central element in the Christian life and continuously brings renewal and change in both our personal lives and our church. What this means for us is that all of our problems in life, all of our problems in the church, all of our problems in the culture stem from a lack of proper orientation with the gospel. So what we're saying here is all of our problems are actually gospel problems. All of our issues are gospel issues. So what we're going to do today is we're going to drill down into this and we're going to try to ask and answer a couple of questions. First, one, what is the gospel? And two, how does it change us and how does it change our church and how can it change the world? So what is the gospel and how does it actually change us? To answer those questions, we're going to open our Bibles, Romans chapter 1. So if you got to open it up, we're going to go there together. We're going to be here and we're going to be in Colossians this morning. But we're going to start right here in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Here's what 
The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, this is what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, the first question we want to ask here is why would Paul be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Right? Well, the word gospel in the Greek is evangelion there. And it literally means good news. Now, this was not a Christian word. This was not a religious word. Good news was just a regular, we would call it a regular secular word. And this is what would happen with evangelions. We today get our news through a plethora of sources, but we can pull out our phones right now and we can get news delivered right to us. Well, obviously that was not the way it went in the first century. And if, let's just say, Rome had finally conquered an enemy and the war is now over, what Rome would do would be send a herald to Evangelion. Send a herald to declare the good news. Guess what? The war is over. And everybody back home would cheer and clap and there would be great joy. Listen, so the first thing we see is good news, or the gospel is good news about something that has happened. It's not good advice. Like our news is mixed. We listen to, our news is mixed, good news, bad news, and good advice. Here's what you should do. Here's who you should vote for. Here's what you should buy. All of that stuff. That's not what good news means. The gospel is something that has been done. It's an event in human history that's meant to produce Great, great joy. Okay? So when Paul here uses this word, gospel, he uses it in reference to the historical reality of what Jesus had accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 15. You can go literally see the historical realities of the gospel there. And this is why Paul has to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, well why? Why, did he, why would he be tempted to be ashamed of the historical reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Maybe most of us today, we're like, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Lived, you know, Jesus. Why would Paul be ashamed? Well, Paul was tempted to be ashamed because Paul was an intellectual of the highest caliber. And therefore, he had a lot of reasons to be ashamed. He was a Jew, for one. And the gospel is this, that a publicly condemned Jewish blasphemer, that's what Jesus was called, a Jewish blasphemer, because he claimed to be the son of God. Jesus got himself judged and crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem in a public spectacle, stripped naked, nailed on a Roman cross, thorns on his head, stabbed in the spy, stabbed in the stabbed in the side, crucified in between two thieves. I mean, naked. Like there's nothing more degrading than that. But the gospel says that that guy who was publicly condemned also was resurrected three days later to live new life. Right? And now that guy is standing at the right hand of God and offers salvation to anyone who believes. So Paul, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, why is he not ashamed of that? He sh there's a lot of reasons for him to be ashamed of that. Intellectual reasons, religious reasons as a Jew. Why is he not ashamed of it? Here is the only reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's true. 
That's it. See, Paul witnessed Jesus with his own eyes. He witnessed his teaching. Paul witnessed his crucifixion. Paul so hated Jesus, he was standing while Stephen was stoned and he was carrying the guy's cloaks, basically saying, kill him because Christianity should be snuffed off this planet. Paul was an antichrist. But now Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What happened? Well, easy. On, in, on, the road to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, right, what happens? The resurrected Jesus shows up to Paul, knocks him off his horse and says, hey, yo, you're wrong. Yes. And when a resurrected person shows up, most people are probably going to listen, right? Most people are probably going to listen. You're persecuting me, Paul. You're persecuting me, my body. And what happens? Paul goes from an antichrist to a pro-Christ who is willing to go from town to town to town preaching this gospel that's so shameful, right? He's willing to be beaten for it. He's willing to be publicly ridiculed because of it. He's willing ultimately to be killed because of it. Why? Because it's true. That's it. That's it. Paul recognizes the fact that this truth doesn't fit neatly into our mental categories and it might get him laughed out of the halls of power in his society, but that doesn't change the fact that it is true. It was a miracle. And by definition, miracles don't fit neatly into our mental categories. It was a supernatural act of God and therefore doesn't fit neatly into our minds. This is again why we need the Holy Spirit, in order to understand and believe the gospel. Okay, so this is what I want to see. First thing. First thing about the gospel is it is the good news about what Jesus has actually done that needs to be told. Okay, that's it. It's a message to be told about what Jesus actually accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. That's what the gospel is. But the gospel is more than just a message to be told. We see it in our text. Look back in seven, verse 17 or 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The next thing we see is that the gospel is also a power to experience. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, that Greek word that's translated power here is dunamis, where we get our words dynamite and dynamic from. That the gospel isn't just a message to be told, it's also a power that transforms whatever it touches. What happened to Paul? Why did Paul go from antichrist to pro-Christ? He was transformed by the power of the gospel. Now this is where we might need some clarity. Because I think most people don't treat the gospel like a power or like the power of God. They treat the gospel like a tool. Many people treat the gospel as a little tool that enables them to feel better about themselves or maybe live their best life. Now, now, think of it like this. It's like a pulley. A pulley, imagine up here if we had a pulley, 
mounted to the ceiling. We run a rope through that pulley. What that pulley does is it allows me to use my power and it, it, it enables me to have a greater power to lift something that I normally couldn't lift in my own strength and my own power. So the thought goes, I'm a pretty good person, pretty smart, got a lot of gifts, I got a lot of talent. I'm living my life the best way that I know how, and God knows me. God knows my heart. To be honest, there's no issue between us. I don't have a problem with God. I doubt, I don't think God has a problem with me. He knows I'm a pretty good person. My greatest problem in life isn't that I'm a sinner and he's a holy God and the wrath of God is upon me and God's got to do something to get that wrath of God off of me. No, 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 no. My greatest problem in life is what? My greatest problem in life is I just need a little bit of help to help me overcome some of my insecurities. In comes the gospel as a pulley. The gospel helps me feel a little bit better about myself. Helps me lift some things I couldn't lift before. Maybe it helps me beat an addiction or get over some glaring character fault in myself. But here's where we need to see the problem. The pulley has no power in itself and therefore it's drastically limited by our own strength and ability. See, when I'm lifting something, all of the power is still inherent in me. I'm the, still the one doing all the work. The pulley does help me accomplish a little bit more. It helps me improve my life, but it hasn't actually changed me from the inside out. And it's still 100% dependent upon my own work, my own effort, my own strength. The gospel isn't a pulley meant to help you lift a few things that you couldn't lift before. Budge a few rocks that you couldn't budge in your own life. The gospel is the dynamic power of God. The dynamite power of God that lifts you up and changes you into a new person from the inside out. The gospel gives you brand new spiritual life when it explodes in your heart. The gospel is the power that can change you, can change a church, and can change the world. So the next question is, okay, the gospel is a message that needs to be told and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Well, how does the gospel change us? How does that actually work? Well, here's the difference. The pulley was all based on my own effort. Still helped me out a little bit, but all based on my own effort. The gospel is all based on Jesus' effort, Jesus' work. Therefore, the gospel is based on this thing called grace. And it comes to us, the power to change comes to us through faith. Look at our text. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, what does Paul mean when he says the righteousness of God is revealed by faith and in the, in the gospel? Well, this is interesting. Martin Luther, 
who was a Catholic priest in the 15th and 16th century. He was a Catholic priest, okay? And he would read this text and fear for his life. He would hear the terms, the righteousness of God, and think about God's holiness, and he would know that there is no way If Christianity is about becoming righteous and earning God's righteousness in some way, there's no way I'll ever do it. I'll never be able to approach the throne of God because God is holy and I'm not. Now listen, God had given Martin Luther a unique sense of the reality of God's holiness. Most of us don't possess it. So most of us think we only care about big sins in our life, okay? Martin Luther cared about all the sins in his life. And this was interesting. He would go to confession so often and he would confess things like this. Today, when we were at at mealtime, I looked at my brother. He had more more food than I did and I envied him. Father, please forgive me. I've sinned. And the priest got so fed up with him, they said, stop coming back until you have something real to confess. Now, Martin Luther was actually right. Envy is just as big a sin as anything else, right? We just don't think of God that way. So Martin Luther had a good picture of God. God is that holy that none of our sins could ever stand in his presence, right? But here's what happens to Martin Luther. Luther starts studying this text that we're studying right here. And he zeroes in on this Greek word here for righteousness, And Luther realized this wasn't just speaking about God's righteousness and holiness, nor was it just speaking about a person's righteousness that they earn through doing good things. Rather, it was a righteousness that God could credit to someone. A righteousness that comes as a gift from a righteous God. Think about direct deposit, right? Direct deposit just gets put right into your account right? Now that can, that can come from the government, right? That can come from your work. That can come from wherever, wherever you got it. Martin Luther realizes this righteousness that he's talking about here is not a righteousness that is meant to be earned, right? That you earn through your own work like you earn a paycheck. Rather, it's a direct deposit from God into your account, from the account of Jesus, Okay, here's what happens. Jesus lives the perfect life that we fail to live. Jesus earns a righteousness that we can never earn. Then Jesus takes our place in the divine exchange. He becomes our sin on the cross. The Father pours his wrath out on that sin and crushes that sin. And then Jesus is resurrected to the right hand of God. And as when we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus deposits his righteousness in our bank account. And now God counts us righteous without us doing anything. Now, when Luther saw this, he says, what? You mean I'm saved by a righteousness that's not mine? He called it an alien righteousness. A righteousness that properly belongs to someone else because it didn't come from him. It came from Jesus, not an alien, but Jesus, right? It's outside of himself. Christ earned it and applied it to him. And Luther says this, when I discovered that, first off, he's a priest. He's a priest at this time, okay? When I discovered that, 
I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. And it was this moment that eventually led to the Protestant Reformation. The gospel changed Martin Luther. The gospel changed the church at large. And the gospel rippled out from there and literally changed the whole world. We're a part of that movement that happened back then. Paul tells us here, the gift of Jesus' righteousness comes to us by grace through faith. And faith itself is a gift of God so that none of us can boast. Think of the type of power here, guys. Think about the type of power that it takes to take a spiritually dead person and bring them to life. Think of the type of power it takes to make a sinner into a saint. What kind of power turns Antichrist Paul into pro-Christ Paul? What kind of power, right, can take a sinner and turn him into a saint? What type of power can make an unrighteous person righteous in one move? That's the type of power that's inherent in the gospel itself. That is the dynamite power of God that exists in the gospel. Now Paul tells us of another type of power in the gospel as well. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 if you would. Colossians chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. I'm going to start in the second half of verse 5. Paul says this. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Pause. About to show us something here. Paul's like, yeah, you guys have heard this thing, the gospel before, but guess what? You need to hear it again. This isn't a one-time one deal. You've heard the gospel. You need to hear it again. Now, this is why. Let's keep reading. Which has come to you as indeed, look, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Here's what Paul is saying. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. He uses an organic metaphor. Think of a seed that when planted into the ground continuously grows up into a powerful oak tree. Listen, the power that lies in that seed is absolutely remarkable. We don't think about this very often. But that little unassuming seed has the ability, when planted, to not only grow and mature into a massive oak tree that if planted too close to your house could push your house off of its foundation... But it also has the ability to multiply and spread oak trees all over the face of the earth. Think about that. All of that power, all of that multiplication power, all of that world transforming power lies in one seed. Paul says the gospel is like that. Here's what he's saying. When you hear and you believe the gospel, it changes you. 
It not only saves you from your sins and delivers you from the wrath of God, it also begins to grow in you, changing you from the inside out, maturing you, right? It gets down into your heart and it's doing work you don't even know it's doing. It's doing work in your heart. It might not be changing your outward behavior right now. It might not be changing the words that you're speaking right now. But when it comes into your heart, it starts changing what you love, what you desire, what you want. And as it continually grows, it does work itself out into your thoughts and into your behaviors and into your life in the world. In other words, salvation isn't just about being forgiven and going to heaven when we die. Salvation also changes who we are, what we love, and how we live our lives today. And if it doesn't, then we're not saved. Paul is saying the gospel is the power that makes you It's the power that saves you and it's the power that makes you more like Jesus. The gospel will produce humility in you. The gospel will produce graciousness in you. The gospel will produce kindness in you. The gospel will produce boldness in you. The gospel will grow and produce generosity in you. The gospel will make you hospitable. Listen, we don't grow up into grumpy old men. We grow up into hospitable old men and women. The gospel should be constantly changing us, constantly renewing us, constantly making us more like Jesus, making us more truth speakers without being brash and harsh. Making us radically inclusive and welcoming without sacrificing truth. The gospel empowers us to resist our sin and live new lives for King Jesus. The gospel is the power of God that declares us righteous while simultaneously making us righteous. This is important for us because many Christians have been taught the lie that the gospel is only for people out there. That the gospel is only for outsiders and unbelievers. That once you believe the gospel, you move on from the gospel and now you begin to follow Jesus through your own hard work and effort. No, Paul says, no, no, no. Our text here shows that is simply not true. He says, you've heard this before, but it's still bearing fruit in you. We don't move on from the gospel. Believing the gospel isn't something we do once. Something we must do every day. Dare I say every moment of every day. That's what it means to live by faith. This is how we come to faith. This is how we grow in faith. We never move on from the gospel. We are to live by faith in the gospel every moment of every day. I want you to see the radical nature of what I just said. And this is how it produces humility. Many times when people have a wrong understanding of the gospel and they think the gospel is only for the people outside, it creates a sense of spiritual pride, spiritual superiority. 
that we somehow get it. We get it in here, and those guys out there don't get it, and it causes people to look down on outsiders. But if what Paul is saying is true, we never move on from the gospel. The gospel saves us, but the gospel also sanctifies us. The gospel makes us more like Jesus. What that means is the insiders and the outsiders have, still have the same basic needs. We all need the gospel right now. No matter where you are in life, no matter what you're struggling with, your most basic need this morning is to know the gospel in all its truth and believe it and apply it to your heart. If you've never put your faith in Jesus and you're struggling to find yourself, you're struggling to manage the guilt you feel, and you need hope. You need meaning and purpose in a world that is broken and lost. You can find that all here in the gospel. God loves you. That brokenness you feel, that's real. That's a gap between you and a holy God. But God has filled that by sending his son to live the life that you can't live and die the death that you deserve for your sins and your rebellion in his kingdom. He gives you all. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you that love all through grace. Just put your faith in him this morning. If you believe that, today is the day of your salvation. And if you have been a Christian for 80 years. The call for you today is also to believe the gospel. See, for the church folk, the temptation is to base your righteousness, your standing before God on your Bible knowledge, on your conservative principles, on your church attendance, on your morality, or even your love for God. You see, I know God loves me. Look how good I am. Look how much much Bible I know. Look how often I go to church. I know God loves me because look how good I am. That's self-righteousness. That will produce a heart that's cold, religious, and full of spiritual pride. What's the call? What's the answer for you? Look away from yourself and look to Jesus, your only hope. He is your perfect righteousness. You have no righteousness in yourself. It must be received by grace through faith, even here, right now. We would say to you, lay your deadly doing down, down at the feet of Jesus and trust in his work on your behalf, not your effort at cleaning yourself up. Get away from the gospel as pulley. Experience the gospel as power. If you're, for those of you in this room, if you're struggling right now to change in some area of your life, you don't need to move on from the gospel. You need to take the gospel deeper into your heart. How do I do that? Well, here's the analogy. Nearly every summer, I take my family out to Colorado to spend some time with our extended family out there. And if you've ever been out there, you've probably driven through some of these enormous tunnels. They are spectacular. They're crazy. They're a little scary sometimes. 
And uh, I'm always thinking of like what happens if you break down on one of these things. Wouldn't be good, right? These tunnels that literally hundreds of cars can fit in at the same time and people just whip through them most of the time without even thinking. But as I'm going through them, I'm thinking, what would have been like to make one of these? Dad, what did you do today? Working our way through a mountain. <laughs> yeah, right, Dad. No, that's what I'm doing. We're drilling. Because that's what, this is what, when God gave us dominion, over the mountains, one of the things it meant was, I bet I could get to the top of that. The other thing it went, I bet we could get through that, <laughs> right? I like these, I like this, right? Now here's what happens. If you know anything about how to do that, you don't show up with a pick and an ax and just work your way through a mountain, right? No one's getting through with just human power alone. You have to have explosive power to get through a mountain. But the trick is, you could bring your big box of dynamite and just start chucking it at the mountain, and you're never going to make it through the mountain. If the, if the dynamite stays on the surface of the mountain, it's just going to blow rocks, and it's just going to make a huge mess and cause avalanches and all kind of stuff. The little bit I do know about making these tunnels, you would have to drill down into the mountain in very specific, deep places and then you would have to slide the dynamite down in those little tubes and then have that wick come out and light that fuse and then boom, it produces a controlled strike. A subterranean explosion that begins in a very systematic way to produce a pathway through the mountain. Right? You can't just put the dynamite on the surface. It's got to get down deep to bring about real, purposeful, direct change. The same is true for the gospel. The problem is, most people and even most Christians only have a surface level comprehension of the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. What's the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. Okay. And then I'm really dealing with anxiety and the real stuff of life. And then someone says, I, you know what? Maybe I need the gospel. What do, Jesus died for my sins. <sighs> gospel blows up on the surface. Nothing really happens. Jesus died for my sins. I'm still anxious. Didn't really work. See, they don't understand how the gospel is multifaceted. He says here, we must understand it in all its truth. There's different aspects of the gospel. And so the gospel kind of stays on the surface with a surface level understanding of the gospel and it never really gets down in the deep nook and crannies of our heart that need change. See, all of us have what seems like mountains in our life. Negative forms of behavior that have taken our whole lives to develop. And they seem overwhelming to us. <clears throat> Mountains of anxiety. And we look at this mountain and we're like, there's no way I can get through it. Mountains of fear. I can't get through it. Mountains of anger. I can't get through it. And a pulley won't help you get through a mountain. 
You need explosive power. You need God's power to help you get through. If we're honest, we look at these mountains and we don't even know where to begin to change. Ask yourself, why are you so controlling? Why are you so fearful? Why are you incapable of making commitments and then keeping them? Why do you get so angry or bitter when someone criticizes your work? Why are you so sheepish about sharing your faith? See, these are all things that need a controlled strike from the gospel. We've got to drill down into our hearts and light the gospel fuse by faith. Let me show you what I mean. Here's one example I could use a million. Jesus tells us, contrary to what our culture says, that lust is a sin. He calls it adultery of the heart. Now, lust operates on a spectrum. It ranges from simple annoyance lust. Annoyance lust is something like, well, you get a pop-up on the screen, and, oh, and, or it's a, a side picture in an article you're reading, and you see it, you know, half-naked woman or man or whatever it is, and, you're, oh, and you, you see it, and you're like, ah, oh, and you just click off it, and you move, and you move on. Or it's like someone, you know, going to Walmart in their bikini. Like, what? Oh, what? okay, all right. We're doing that now, okay. All right. It's just annoyance. It's annoyance. Now it's annoyance, lust, all the way to the spectrum of horrible things like rape, etc. So lust is that spectrum, but it's a sin and Jesus calls it a sin and we must push away from it and run from it and repent of it. Now most of us have to deal in some form with the sin of lust. How do we do that. How do we take the gospel down into lust and blow it up? Produce that controlled strike. Like I've, I've helped, I've walked with a lot of men and a lot of ladies on working through their lust. And I'll tell you what, a surface level response doesn't, doesn't help. Hey, Jesus died for your sins. Stop it. Jesus died for my sins. Stop it. Jesus died for my sins. Stop it. Doesn't work. It's not wrong. It is true. Jesus did die for your sins. Lust is a sin that he died for. You have been justified. You have the righteousness of Christ. That is true. But it's surface level. It's lazy. Do the work to drill down into that for a controlled explosion. Let me show you what I mean. The reality is we all lust for different reasons. Some people lust, and let's just say look at pornography, because they're lonely. Others because they're anxious. Others because they like the sense of control they feel. Others because they're deeply insecure, and pornography is the one place where they feel wanted, even though it's momentary and all a lie. 
Some people just look at porn because they're lazy and becoming a good man with good strong character that can attract a real woman and please a woman is actually exhausting and really difficult. And it's a whole lot easy, easier to use porn to try to gain the pleasure of satisfying a woman without actually satisfying a woman. Each one of these underlying motivations, though, here's what I want you to see. Subterranean stuff going on. Each one of these underlying motivations for lust are different and need a different controlled strike from the gospel. Preachers, I think Tim Keller famously said this, and I think he gets it from Kierkegaard, that what I'm talking about now is a sin under the sin. So there's the sin of lust, but there's a sin under that that's actually driving it. And it doesn't matter. I can't just stop lusting because it's coming out of this other sin, this desire for control or fear or whatever it is. So I've got to get the gospel down to this subterranean sin to produce, to produce real change. Let's say that I start doing this and asking these questions and maybe I'm with a brother or sister in Christ and they're helping me walk through some of these things and listening to my story and helping me tease it out and what's really driving this and what's under this and I find out that my real issue is control. My life feels out of control. And when I get a real sense of that fact, I have a bad day at work. Something doesn't go the way I want it to go. I look at porn. What does the gospel say to me? First, it says, oh, your feeling is actually correct. You are not in control. You cannot control everything in your life. You can't manage all the possible contingencies out there. And for you to try to will only create more anxiety and create more stress and create more pressure. It's a vicious cycle. The more you try to control, the more you realize you're not in control and you're unable to control. And therefore, it doubles down on your feelings and might be pushing you back to your outlet, which is pornography. But believing that you are in control will only create more anxiety in your life. Rather, the gospel reminds me the God who knows all. You know what that means? The God who has every contingency already figured out in his plan. That God right now is doing 10,000 things in this room that you are unaware of. That God knows, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? He's like, got it all figured out. It's already in my plan. And not only is he all powerful, he's omnibenevolent, he's all good, and he promises to be working all things out for the good of those who believe. In Jesus, he's working all things for our spiritual good. Our feelings of being out of control, those negative feelings, should actually be the things that bring me back to the foot of the cross, to bring me back to Jesus. Not something that drives me to pornography. So as I begin to process this and say, oh, my control, it's my control issues. What I might see is that my control issue is actually a pride issue. Oh, we're down. 
multiple levels now. See, I think that I know exactly how my life should go. And God is getting it wrong. That's what's at the bottom of this. God, I can't trust you. God, I know better than you about how my life should go. There's no way you can make this good. You haven't brought me the spouse that I need. You haven't got me this. You haven't got me that. That thought, God, I know how my life should go and you're getting it wrong. That thought should bring a Christian to their knees. Wait, wait, wait. The God who sent his one and only son to live the life that you can't live and die the death Experience the wrath of God in your place so you never have to? That God who's done all of that for you has got it wrong in your life? He's, he's, you're slipping through his fingers and he's not controlling all things? He's not working things out for your good? That God? You have the, you have the audacity to not trust him in this thing after he's already done this for you? That should bring a Christian to their knees in repentance. Father, after what you've done for me, how dare I not trust you with this thing in my life? Listen, the day Jesus Christ was crucified was the most hopeless, darkest day in human existence. The one person who didn't deserve anything negative in his life. The one person who lived a holy, righteous, sinless life gets crucified. And every one of Jesus's friends said, God, you're getting it wrong. God, you're getting it wrong. God, you messed up. There's no way you can bring light out of this darkness. There's no way you can bring life out of this death. There's no way you can flip this curse into a blessing. But guess what? They were wrong. That's exactly what he did. The darkest day of human history, three days later, gave birth to the brightest day in human history where Jesus walked out of the tomb. And he offers salvation to anyone who believes. And God promises to do that in every single one of our lives. Bring light out of darkness. Bring life out of death. Bring order out of chaos. God is the one who can bring blessing out of curses. So when I, I get from lust to control to pride. And I look at the cross and the cross humbles me. And then I confess, Father, I am sinful. I am arrogant. I am proud. I think I know how my life should go and you aren't doing what you want me to do. But when I go back to the cross, I realize that I can trust you. That you know how to bring life out of death. Now listen, that's a subterranean gospel explosion. That's getting 
to the root of the problems in our life and dropping a bomb, a gospel bomb there. And that is what begins to change us into radically different people. Do you know how to do that with whatever it is you're struggling with? Do you know how to do that? If you're a Christian and you're not growing, it's because you're not doing that. You're not applying the gospel to your heart. Do you know how to do that? If you don't, you need to be in a missional community with people who do know how to do it. And they can help you get under the surface and get down to these subterranean idols and subterranean things down here and put the gospel on it. I try to do that every single week in here to the best of my ability, but I'm not enough. I can't see you and hear your story and understand all the complexities of it, but the people in your missional community can. So, we see the gospel is the message of the work of Jesus, what he's done. It's a message to be told, but it's also a power to experience. A power that's got dynamite power and it's got organic power and it changes us from the inside out. My question to you this morning is, do you believe it? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf. I thank you. It's a message that's true. It's a historical reality, but it's also a power that work in changing your people. Would you bring that change this morning? You're the only one who can do it. And as we come to the Lord's table, we come with sinful, needy hands. And once again, you give us the gospel. You put the gospel in our hands. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. This took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the blood shed for the remission of our sins, that we're to eat it and we're to drink it. Father, every single week, it reminds us of the gospel. So we come to you this morning and we ask that you would feed us once again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.